Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, a podcast for embedded Linux developers. Welcome to Linux Link podcast by TimeSys. Um, this is Maciej Halas here. Um, I'm with the product management team, and with me is Gene Sally. Hi there. Uh, we have um, had a lot of uh, feedback after our last podcast that we've recorded. Um, roughly, it was two weeks ago now. Oh, wow, time flies. Yeah. Um, but uh, we got a lot of questions and a lot of interest in a topic that we were covering then, which was um, how to uh, speed up uh, boot time of a Linux kernel and the entire Linux solution on an embedded system. Yeah, I was really surprised to see that, that much feedback. I, I, I know when we <clears throat> drive around and fly around and talk to people, that that's a common problem. And... Um, but but just the just the amount and the passion with with which people responded was was inter- you know I guess just surprised me and so I think today <clears throat> unless we just start talking about other stuff that's I don't know maybe more interesting but we're going to talk more about a combination of small footprint and uh, and booting quickly and I know there's there's um, there's like a standard division of labor here in the great times this podcast empire or whatever but I know Mache <laughs> usually handles the uh, the kernel side of things. And, and I usually stick with user space because that's something simple I can understand. And uh, and there's there's strategies both uh, there's things you can do in both places that yeah. that can make your life a lot easier with respect to you know making your system sm- make an air quote small, and then usually small also means you know, quickly booting. Yeah. And I think this will maybe it won't though, but I think it will sort of dovetail in with what we talked about the last time. Absolutely, yeah. and I think that you know fast boot. Can't live without small footprint. Oh yeah. The other way around, it ap- actually is very much possible because people are constrained with the space that they have available on embedded um, device to to store the application and the entire root file system. But um, well, having a fast booting kernel with a large root file system and a lot of services, well, not such a good idea. So. Um, as you said, Jim, uh, today I think we'll we'll have fun with um, a number of topics around uh, both user space and kernel space, and um, see how you like it. And again, if you have any questions or feedback uh, as we go through this podcast, I, I just wanted to bring it up right from the start. Let us know, please. Uh, yeah, well, you know, <clears throat> speaking of which, you know, here's here's a question I get from customers all the time. So I, I go, or they call me on the phone, and and I say, well. How do I know? So I have this current configuration tool, and you gave me some documentation, but how do I know what I can take out? I, I, I'm fearful that if I take out certain things mm-hmm. or different things, I go through this configuration program, I have lots of options, I'm scared, uh, I don't want to make a mess of anything. How do I know what I can take out? Are you talking about kernel? Or? Yeah, on the kernel side. I hear that all the time. Yeah. And uh, um, and so usually, we, I mean, you know, times as we have some... Uh, help with documentation. We can point users to this. Say, hey, you can take it. This, this. But I, I'm, I'm going to be that person, Machi. And I, and I imagine okay. sitting across from me at a customer site, and, and I say, well, well, what can I do? I mean, is there something easy I can do? Like, what can I take out of my kernel? Well, so one way of looking at it is actually, and I've seen that approach at many places um, as customers were designing that fast boot um, system. Um, they were simply going through uh, designing a graph, um, simply putting um, the execution path um, in, uh, in a form of a tree uh-huh. to understand better 
what the requirements are as far as uh, what the application will need, and then uh, trying to um, overlay that on top of uh, what kernel comes with, I mean, the default configuration. Uh, and that was very helpful because as you go through a kernel configuration and you, and you do understand the, the uh, your requirements um, mm -hmm. for the kernel, the, the execution path where you really uh, could save time, mm -hmm. uh, you can uh, very quickly remove some of the things that, that are in the kernel. Another approach is um, there's been this initiative uh, going on in the past called um, Tiny Kernel, I think. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a, you know what? There's a decent set of patches out there on CELF's yes. website. Because some guy he put in a, a ton of effort into doing that, mm. and I think his patches were dropped. I, I actually think they, I think they dropped maintenance of them, which is well a bummer. Actually, what happened was um, they got merged into a Linux kernel mainline and, and no longer live as separate patches. So they were available up to the kernel version, I believe, 2615. Mm -hmm. uh, but now there's an option inside the Linux kernel uh, with which you can turn on a lot of those features that, that were previously enabled by the by the tiny kernel patches. So uh, that option is called config embedded. Uh -huh. And when you do that, a lot of features, well, the, the, the kernel will attempt to build only a minimalistic scenario for the end user. Yeah. Well, it turns, I, I can't, it's time to remember, there's, there's a great big set of patches, and uh, one of the things that struck me as most interesting of all the things, and I thought, ooh, this guy has, this guy's a smart guy, right, hmm. is they turned off inlining. Yeah. It was one of the compiler options that they turned off, which uh, which results in a greater savings than you would think. Um, but there, I guess when you're talking about you know, kernel minimization patches, there, there are things along that line. Some of them have to do with reducing the internal uh, static buffers that the kernel allocates, mm -hmm. Right, because if it's static, it has to lay out that much memory in the image, yeah. and then some of the other things involve simply compiling with switches that are more likely to produce a smaller image size. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, I remember one of those was you know turning off inlining. And I thought, wow, yeah, someone's smart. No, absolutely, I think that the, the whole config embedded and um, <clears throat> tiny Linux helps users to very quickly prune unnecessary stuff out of a kernel with just one kernel option. And then um, getting to a fairly small size um, of binary Linux kernel uh, at the end. Yeah. So it, it can be a very good starting point for someone that designs a system that is supposed to boot fast or that is supposed to have a smaller footprint. Yeah. You know what, Mache, and, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do we have a URL for that? Or do we... Or should this actually be in our... Because one of the things that marketing nags us for all the time, we finish these yeah. up and like, well, you should make some speaker notes and we get this <laughs> thing about, uh, you know, that we're not doing a good job with the follow-up. and uh, So maybe with this time, we'll get motivated. And uh, we'll supply we the... Are. Yeah. And we'll <laughs> supply the config. Because I know there's a URL that... There's a, a URL out there that, that explains what we have to do. Or not explains, but says what's in that config embedded. Yes. And and, and so maybe this will prompt us to actually do a good job this time yes. uh, with respect to following up with some notes. I agree. I think this is a great idea. And um, uh, I'm sure that we'll, we'll do a better job this time on, on writing the uh, <laughs> notes up for, for this particular podcast. Yeah. Hopefully, so, maybe uh, that's the plan at least, right? Well, and uh, so this is just one of the topics that we talked about so far, right? Uh, yeah. How to, how to use uh, something that's already pre-built into a kernel to to get the um, 
the size of the Linux kernel smaller out of the box. But um, we mentioned last time a number of configuration options that um, can help in getting the um, Linux kernel booting fast. And, and one of the options I think you brought up last time was uh, the quiet option. Oh, yeah. That does miracles. It really does. Um, you know, you get all those messages that fly by. Yeah. Um, you can turn on quiet and voila, no messages fly by. And it's, it's interesting, and I know it's in that config-embedded uh, config URL too, but I believe in, um, in the config, in, the, in that set of patches, there's, uh, they've stubbed out uh, printk. In yeah. essence, printk black holes, right? And so I th also thought that was a wondrously intelligent trick. Yeah. So if you can't, if for whatever reason you can't get that config, uh, uh, <clears throat> if you can't change your kernel at this point, you might be hamstrung by... Uh, uh, whatever sort of changes you have internally, like you might not be able to get that change in. At least you can twiddle with the command line and say "quiet," <clears throat> and that'll suppress the messages from coming over. Mm -hmm. It's it's amazing how much time those take. It, it, it really is. Well, plus this is actually a runtime option, so yep. you can. It's something that you can um, change on the fly. So if you have a device out in the field, mm -hmm. and for diagnostic <clears throat> purposes, you would like to see still the the booting messages, all you do is, uh, I guess, remove the quiet op option from the uh, kernel command line, yeah. and then uh, all the print case... Waymo, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, you can actually get diagnosis again. Yeah, that's actually a fantastic option. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, part of the thing about taking it out of the kernel entirely is you've lost that bit of diagnostic yeah. uh, feedback. But, but you're right, I mean, if you set it up as a runtime thing and you can get in there and just uh, kick the bootloader a little bit... <clears throat> you can put yourself back it, back into that state and get some some useful feedback messages. One of the things that you were talking about, Mache, was uh, and I know you explained it to me twice, and you went real slow. And I still couldn't, <laughs> I still didn't figure it out. You're talking about uh, about reducing application startup time through prelinking. Yes. And and uh, could you explain it a, th a third? Because I, I, I just I don't get it. Yeah. Well, so uh, it's actually a way of uh, reducing. Uh, job that's done by a dynamic linker. So if you have an application right um, that requires or links uh, during the runtime with a, a lot of uh, dynamic libraries, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you invoke that application, linker okay. itself on target has to do a lot of work trying to find the relocations and, and all that. So one of the things that I don't mean to interrupt too much, mm -hmm. but one of the things that folks in the may not have a grip around that I, I guess when I found out I thought this was amazing right but when you actually invoke something that's dynamically linked with Linux what really happens is that the system goes to some executable on the file system and runs your program as a parameter to that executable and then that executable goes through and resolves all the addresses like an executable that you're talking about is really a linker oh, right. oh ex yeah, yeah exactly right yeah so this, yeah, the executable that's running is, is a linker and so what it'll do is it'll uh, take your program as input, it'll read the import header t table, and then bring everything in and begin to resolve all the uh, addresses before your program runs. Yes. So, and, and that's something that, that, so whenever you run something that's, that's dynamically linked, what, you're really loading two programs. Um, the first, this linker program that does the fix-up, and then your program once it's, once right. it's ready to run. So you can greatly optimize that by simply uh, putting that information already in those executables. And uh, that's what pruning actually helps you with. And uh, it, it, as long as you're not changing your application yeah. and libraries, uh -huh. that approach will work. 
So wait a second. So wait a second. So pre. I'm sorry. This is like the fifth time or the fourth time or whatever. Maybe maybe you'll understand. So what happens is that pre-linking does the job of that little that that linker program that runs first tables. and resolves all the addresses. Yes. And then that's the image that you run with the addresses resolved. Yes. Right. So uh, the dynamic linker doesn't have to do much when you uh, when you execute that on a that application on the target because. Um, application already knows uh, where to jump for specific symbols. It has to, of course, load um, libraries and all that into memory, and, and, and those symbols have to be available for the application. But um, with pre-link, um, you would greatly reduce time um, that your application requires to really run. So wait a second. So, so how do I pre-link? I didn't even get. I, I know before you got like really frustrated for, as you explained this to me. Like I just didn't get through my skull. But yeah. so if I want to do pre-link, like what do I do to pre-link? Well, you actually do that at the uh, compile time, I okay. believe, and, and you do that um, before you deploy your application to a um, to a target. So there's like some magic switch I send into GCC. Do you know what that is? I can you remember. Don't remember exactly the switches and, and how. At the same we do time that. we get that that, that config embedded URL, we'll, we'll put that there. So it's we'll, thing number two. Yes, I think that that's uh, that's something that um, would be of a huge interest to customers. Yeah. Um, because again, um, some applications tend to grow uncontrollably. <laughs> and oh yeah. Prelink is very helpful in, in in those scenarios. That it can greatly reduce. Um, uh, the the startup time for those applications even even by you know thirty percent sometimes. Oh, that's cool. And then when you're working on a slower board, that that really means something, right? Yes. But you're you're right because I mean the application is not it's not like a traditional desktop system where things can shift around. It's not going to change. So you can safely do that optimization, and then still get some of the benefits of a shared library at the right. same time. Right. Well, so another way of uh, basically trying to speed up your application is to do. Um, Another level of optimization, which is profiling, mm-hmm. right? So um, with profilers, you can uh, really um, analyze your code from the standpoint of uh, where the time is spent in your application, and try to figure out if the way you've written your application simply puts in too many loops in at specific um, line in code, and, and that's what's uh, causing, um, let's say, performance um, hit. Yeah, well, we use O-Profile for that here. Um, when, when we do that kind of, I know, not here, but me. I'm sure about other I'm sure. But yeah, we use O-Profile a lot because it really does it does great things. It gives you pass counts. And then not only does it give you pass counts, but it gives you time spent per per line even. And then you can get drill up. Oh, it's yeah. got pretty, drill up. pretty pictures, though, too, right? Yeah, I like the pictures. <laughs> it can visually uh, indicate where in the code um, the processor is spending most time. Yeah. And then you can drill down by just clicking specific um, bar graphic on, on the graph, yep. and, and that will take you straight into the code. Yeah, yeah, it does make it it does make it easy because sometimes you you know, you code yourself an inner loop, and then uh, don't, you don't really understand how many times that that, that passes by, and, yeah. and and you know you really can't. I don't care what people say about loop optimization and whatever else the compiler does, right? Yeah. The compiler can't make up for boneheaded coding, right? Right, right, and. Plus, and everyone does that. Plus, we we all been through that experience where where simply too many hours in front of a computer, and uh, you compile the program, you're happy, and then you run the program. And 
well, something's wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, because you wrote the program, you're biased and you can't really see um, what's wrong with it. I mean, mm-hmm. where the bottleneck is. And, oh, and yeah. I think that the O profile um, is like the second pair of eyes that, that looks at your code and, and helps you understand what compiler really did to that code, right? And, and helps you track some of the blocks of code where, um, well, the time is spent. Yeah, and it really gets handy too if you're working on a, I mean, the, it really gets handy too when you're working on a project with like four other guys or five other people and then, you know, you're using someone else's code. You don't really know what it's doing and so, you know, someone's giving you an API and you're, you're totally abusing it, right, in order to get your job done. And, um, uh, and you found out that, you know, your, your abuse of the, uh, <laughs> this other guy's API is actually causing some performance issues. Uh, uh, because you're not using it correctly, yeah. Or you could do could be doing a better job, yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, application optimization is is one side as well, but um, well, applications live in various root file systems. And I know, Gene, that you've uh, been talking, presenting um, at various at various places. Um, what are different selections and and which uh, type of uh, file system to choose for a specific application, uh, yeah. but for a an embedded application that is size and speed conscious, what are the options? Well, you know what, and this is, is a crappy answer, but it, it depends, right? Mm. So there are a couple of things you have to worry about. First, you have to worry about the hardware you're running on, and you know, depending on how your file system is stored. And then the other constraints are what you need to do with your file system once it's once it's there. So the, the first sort of first sort of division is well, are you running on the, like a flash-based device, an M, what they call an M, MTD device? Okay, is, so so let's assume at first that that's the scenario that end user wants to deploy into a flash. Ah, so then you have to then you have two two questions because flash is an overused, mm. very overused term. So you have the the one where it's. Uh, a flash that has what they call a uh, translation layer yeah. on it that makes the flash device appear to you like some regular hard drive with a with a spindle in it. Okay, yep, yep. Um, and you know it's just slipping my mind what that kind of what, what that device is called. But if it if it presents itself that way, and the other thing is, I we'll put it in the notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the notes. <laughs> so, that's right. So you know we're never going to do that. <laughs> never going to. So. Um, and then, and then the the other thing is um, uh, the other if it's just a raw flash device, it's a state standard MTE device mm-hmm. uh, with, that just appears as flash memory. So if you're going to go the MTD device, you need a where leveling file system. Yeah. And in fact, and I won't bore the audience uh, or with all this, but there's a lot of differences between a a file system that's specialized for flash because the flash works with different you know, represents its memory, its store in a substantially different manner. But there's two big there's two big things out there. One's called YFFS, which is yet another flash file system. Mm-hmm. Two, they all have yep. to end in two. And then the other one is JFFS, yep. which is journaling flash file system. Yep. Two. Actually, what I've seen actually customers do uh, those that can that have enough flash, mm-hmm. um, they go for an uncompressed version of um, the root file system. Oh yeah, and that's I guess the difference between the two, right? That JFS mm-hmm. two is really a, a very compressed uh, version of a root file system, mm-hmm. and yet another flash file system too um, has a 
no or low level of uh, compression. Yeah. Thus, um, it takes less time for an application to really load into memory. Yes. Yeah, with all these, uh, you get in, not only do you have uh, device trade-offs, right, mm. but you also have uh, the classic time versus storage trade-off. So you know, for writing these file systems, you can specify, you know, even if it's not running on flash, you can specify compression, and even what's compressed is different. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I guess but still going back to the filing systems is that the, 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 the where leveling file systems are designed because or designed that way because for for flash, you can't you can't write to any one area, or put it this way, for any area of flash, there's a certain duty cycle. Right. And so you have to be careful to spread your changes around the media so that not one place gets most of the most of the rights. Right. But some of the interesting issues is, is that makes the the file system very non-deterministic with respect to operation time. Right. Um, uh, as you get into these things, you find out they both of these manipulate these things called erase blocks, mm-hmm. which is where you can write data and then it keeps track of what's eligible to be replaced and then does a garbage collection step. Right. But there are times when you can do a write, you can do an append to a file, and find yourself waiting a while right. <laughs> as the system goes around and tries to figure out where to put the memory and, and or where to put that change right down on the file system. Yeah. And that sort of delay depending upon your application, can be, it can range between irritating and disastrous with respect to the user's experience. So is, is there really an option for uh, an application that needs to boot fast and, and actually um, customers using a soldered onboard um, um, flash device that, that actually requires a um, wear level um, well, there's a yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of different, couple of different ways to go from there. There are several file systems that are in fact read, read only. I would say they're write only file systems. Okay. So that's, that's what does that mean? But <laughs> so, but they're read only file systems, and so you can take an area flash and you can put a file system on it, like uh, CramFS or ROMFS or even EXT2. Um, EX, you know, a journaling EXT3 yeah. is, is EXT2 with journaling. Yeah. And journaling on a read-only file system. Yeah, but if you really have to write to a flash device, if you really have to write to it, um, I you know that I would recommend getting um, a file system and putting a little area in RAM, and then being clever about what you write into RAM hmm. and then what you write onto the the flash, because eventually you're you're still going to be in the same pickle. Yeah. One way or another, you're still going to be in the same pickle where you're going to have unpredictable behavior with respect to how it handles erase blocks when your device reaches its limits. Well, so I guess one of the approaches that, that you already talked about is to keep the application and the entire system in the onboard flash uh, in a read-only mode uh-huh. and then have some sort of an external flash device um, connected to the platform via USB or something or if uh, customers lucky through an onboard uh, compact flash uh, port or something and have uh, the data from application one being stored in a separate device. Or in a, separate, or in a, or in a different partition. Because uh, you can always sit, if you think about it, you can be clever about your writes and you can have a RAM disk mm-hmm. or something along those lines and you can queue up your writes in RAM and then you can be clever about when you decide to flush that, you know, put that down on top of uh, flash. Um, and store it persistently. Mm-hmm. Um, most users, I mean, if you if you have a device that is, 
how do we can I put it? Like the, the way the user interacts with it is such that they're going to store a lot of data, and that's simply the way the device is going to work. Like if one of those fancy PDA things, or I don't know what the kids are playing with these <laughs> days. But if you have something like that, well, necessarily you're going to look at getting a higher performance compact flash device yeah. Yeah. that has uh, the compact flash is, is a device that looks like an EX. Right. It, it, make, it looks like a regular drive, an right. IDE drive, and so it has what they call the flash translation layer right. built into it. Right. And those handle wear leveling substantially faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, I, I, I wouldn't know whether they did a better job or not. That's I guess you could have a de- debate yeah. but uh, about that. But they do handle rates a lot faster. And so if you find yourself in that situation, and that's the requirements of the device, you're probably going to find yourself going down the route of using some compact flash so you can get the right level of performance right, right. Uh, for most of your rates. So since we talked about flash and storage device in general, um, I think that there's another topic that we haven't touched upon yet, which is an approach to um, avoiding uh, a step of loading uh, executables to RAM. It's called execute in place. And uh, it allows um, both kernel and application to run straight from a flash device. Yeah. And again, that that's another area that uh, customers look at because um, loading anything to memory takes time. And uh, if you have large application, um, allocating memory and getting everything in into the memory um, greatly increases the the impression of startup time. Yeah, I mean diminishes it, uh, it not so it's it's a negative uh, more than positive yeah. but um, again there are trade-offs uh, because um, uh, it's great to have a fast system startup time and uh, use the execute in place technology mm-hmm. but um, if your application is called very frequently um, and for example links with some additional dynamic libraries uh, it's probably better to keep that in in, in RAM because um, the performance is greater. I mean, speed is much greater in, in accessing files, mm-hmm. but if you want to execute something from um, flash device, execute in place is, is definitely one of the uh, approaches to consider. Yeah. Well, you know what's up in, in 2.6, I guess, uh, we talked about this a, a, a little before we, I guess, turn on the microphone and but one of the things we did talk about a little bit was the uh, init RAM FS. There's a new, there's a new Fangle file system out there uh, for for embedded. Uh, I would say it's embedded. It's um, in fact it's it's used by default in the Linux kernel, mm-hmm. and where you can populate a uh, you can populate a file, uh, you can create a file which is in essence a uh, uh, which when the kernel loads is loaded right into right into right into the directory cache mm-hmm. inside the kernel. And there's a file system that is, in essence, an alias on top of a node cache. Mm-hmm. And and um, that enables you to do things like combine, well, uh, uh, you combine your kernel, even the build for your initial RAM file system into the kernel build process. Mm-hmm. Because you, with the kernel, you can go in there and you can point at this particular directory and it'll sweep up all of that data It'll actually create a um, CPIO archive. Yes, I think it's funny that you know, CPIO yeah. is what older than. <laughs> well, you know, 
initial ideas are um, al almost uh, always, or the simplest ideas are the best. Right? Yeah, I know the Ford Falcon, I think, was introduced whenever they were, uh, whenever CPIO came out, right? So, in essence, it's a CPIO archive, and um, that's created. And what's nice about CPIO is it does a good job of sweeping up uh, device nodes and everything else, right? And, and, and then you can, then that's loaded right into memory when the yeah. Uh, when the device, when the kernel starts, and the kernel sort of expects it. As a matter of fact, the way 2.6 is written, the kernel startup is that there, in essence, is always an init RAM FS pointer. It's just whether yeah. it's populated with anything or not. And, and I guess another reason why um, working with initial RAM file systems is usually faster than in, with initial RAM disks mm -hmm. is that initial RAM disk is, is utilizing also a block device driver. Mm -hmm. So the execution path to access any node on that root file system is far longer than one of initial RAM file system. Yeah. Well, the, the other curious thing, too, is the... Um, I don't mean the super geek out here. The other thing, too, is that the EXT2... Most, most of those initial RAM disks um, are EXT2 formatted. Mm -hmm. The EXT2... Uh, module is like 130k. It's it's big, right? Yeah. And so, uh, if you use something like init ramfs uh, for your initial ram disk, th you can do something right away, like set up, uh, or you can do something right away, like eliminate ext2, and you'll yeah. gain like 130k yeah. Yeah. off your kernel size. Uh, so I mean, there's some memory savings there as well too. Uh, and uh, an another great thing about the initial ram file system is that uh, I think that you talking about it a bit, but um, that at the end, when you build a initial RAM file system and the Linux kernel, you get at, as the output a single image that it's easier to deploy, it's easier to flash it onto a device because oh, yeah. you go only through one set of steps yeah, um, and you don't have to uh, necessarily play with um, addresses inside um, well on board once once you you know load everything up like with initial RAM RAM disks or um, some other root file system types where you have to first load the initial initial RAM disk or the file system into memory mm -hmm. load the kernel and then point the kernel to a location memory where the file system lives yeah by using initial RAM file system all that is eliminated yeah right because the kernel already knows where where um, the RAM file system is we yeah and you know what the other thing is but I will point out it's like there's always trade-offs right uh, so there's initial RAM disk trade-offs too I, uh, and, sorry init RAM FS I'll use the right okay. name because I'm sure someone will write it right but the initial using init RAM um, FS does have some drawbacks and first and foremost is that what you have is an alias on top of the, no the node cache yeah. and it's untethered with respect to the amount of memory you can consume right so uh, if you have an application that logs data every 30 seconds or something, yeah. and then it'll keep doing that and doing that and doing it to, to what's allocated all memory. Mm -hmm. And so you do need to be careful there. There, I, th I think there's uh, uh, tempfs, if I yes. yes, it is tempfs. Mm -hmm. But there's tempfs, and you can use that uh, uh, to create a file system that works that is, a, again, an alias on top of the mm -hmm. node cache 
uh, in Linux. However, you can bound the size, mm-hmm. and that's extremely important if you if you want to set up a system where it'll behave predictably at capacity at, at limits, right? Because mm-hmm. if you use a NitRAM FS, the first thing the QA guy is going to do, right? Because you know the job of QA is to make your life miserable <laughs> and to break your application and to make you come in on the weekends or whatever else. They're going to come in and they're going to overrun your log file if if, if they know what does that. Which number one, you shouldn't tell your QA guys anything, right? That's the mistake is telling them something. But, but if if they know it logs data, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to wind up the capacity and, and break that. So if you find yourself in that situation, make sure you're using some file system where you can yeah. limit the size. But um, I guess that where customers are lucky, or, or basically where where the process um, is successful, is that when the QA team asks about log files. Right. At that stage, the the project is still in the development phase, and customer tends to use um, the um, a, a rather different approach for root file system, I guess, um, like NFS mounted root file system or something that you know has uh, hundreds of libraries and utilities that um, um, development and um, QA team can probe the system with. But yeah. um, there are a lot of applications um, that are deployed in the field that have capability of um, providing uh, output from run, right? Yeah. What, whatever run is, if it's an execution or uh, standby or... Um, but um, a lot of those applications have also um, some sort of a connection to um, the company that is using that uh, device in the field. So yeah. it, it's kind of like devices deployed in the field, but you can collect data on fly. Yeah. And um, uh, in a lot of times, um, data is not really logged on the root file system, but it's also sent straight through a like a TCP/IP connection back to a, a logging facility. Yeah, I know there's ways to mediate the that, yeah. that, but it's certainly there. It's, it's a risk you have to be aware of. Absolutely. Uh, and like I said, if if you have good good testers yeah. and good people like that, that is that is something that they're going to exploit and make sure that you did a good job on. You know, the, there's one other thing I want to bring up about an NitRAM FS. I'm sorry, I think we're going going over. But that's too bad. So <laughs> the other thing yeah, about one. yeah, I'm like sure like 80 percent of the people listening have already hit the stop button. Huh. That's on them. But the the uh, um, uh, man, I lost my train of thought. Oh, the other thing about a NitRAM FS is that be, because it is linked in right with the kernel, I knew you get the benefit. You can build at the same time. You can deploy at the same time. But you also have a little bit of an issue with respect to doing updates on your root file system independent of your kernel, um, because you know this is Linux, right? So those are two separate uh, entities, mm-hmm. and if you put those two things together, uh, you just run into you run into risks, and you have to be really good about freezing your kernel code when it goes out, which you should be doing anyway, right? But well, sometimes you don't, right? It happens, right? So you have to really go about freezing out your kernel code so that when you want to go modify your root file system, you can make that make those modifications independent and, independent and then do your rebuild because yeah. they still are separate entities. So you got to make sure that because yeah. uh, you will run into issues because that means you've changed, in essence, how you've changed your application, but you need to affect that change by redoing a kernel build. And yes. so it doesn't reduce some extra work in that respect. And I think that this is more of a, a process that companies have in place um, for building their application. Well, and if companies don't have that process in place but um, are interested in 
utilizing initial RAM file system, that's definitely an area where they should consider. Yeah, and most folks that do that you know, have been in the embedded world for a while, I mean, they have that concept in their head where they will combine the OS and yeah. the root file system anyway. So it's like a familiar concept to them. Uh, uh, so they they sort of understand they'll, they'll have yeah. the head around and they they usually have the right practices anyway right. in place. Uh, but I just wanted to bring it up because it's, yeah. it's like any other engineering thing, right? You have Absolutely. some some amount of trade off. And, and uh, I guess that that takes us back also to uh, the fact that there are other operating systems in embedded space that are very monolithic. That um, where you have the root file system application combined with the operating system. Um, you don't even have a root file system, and uh, right. depending on how things are set yeah. up, it's just, just all linked into one link together. Thing, yeah. Right, but um, um, I guess a lot of embedded engineers um, are coming from w- with that thought in their mind, and they want to mimic that approach in Linux. And, and initial RAM file system is a is the by far the best. Oh yeah, um, it comes approach. From, yeah, so I, I think we sort of I think we're done for uh, today. Well, yes, for today. <laughs> for today, so we're done. So if you have any questions or comments, uh, drop us a line, podcast.timesys.com, uh, or, or I think you can visit the podcast page uh, at, at lldn.timesys.com. There's a button there somewhere. That, who knows where it is? I, I think if you click under learn, or po- whatever. But there's a podcast page, and at the bottom you can leave some notes mm-hmm. if you want to drop us a line that way. I, uh, I know most folks are fairly, I wouldn't say shy, but the, the, I know the preferred method is email, so please uh, email. We, we'll read them and uh, do our best to get back to you. Um, and also, we would like to ask you for um, any ideas of uh, what else you would like to hear uh, about um, around Linux from us. And uh, we are also very much interested in uh, what you are doing and, and the types of projects that you're designing and the kind of problems that, that you're running into um, Maybe we can um, explore some of those areas um, live during one of our podcasts. Yeah, I know for, for, for however much we've been doing embedded work before, whenever you talk to a customer, you always learn, you always learn something new. They're always doing something different. Uh, and, and so uh, it's a great way to figure out what's out there. But then for as much as people do different things, a lot of folks still run into the same sorts of problems. Yeah. And I, we just want to make sure that if we take up some of your time, that we at least talk about problems that are you know, that you're trying to solve and help you out that way. So, all done. Um, thanks a lot. Thank you very much for your attention. This podcast was brought to you by Timesys. Check out our new site to get free code, discuss, and learn about embedded Linux development. Go to timesys.com today.